We continue our worship now as we look to the scriptures, and I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 9 through 57, verse 21 is where we'll be this morning. Isaiah 56, verse 9, and it's a long section, it's a 20, 30, uh, 24 verse, about 24 verses or so. Now we'll read the text as we go along in the sermon, and, uh, but will you join with me one more time as we uh, come before God's word? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and your word is truth. Lord, your word has the power to sanctify us, to make us more holy, to make us more like your son. We thank you that your word is most importantly the word which reveals to us the good news of Jesus Christ and he who died for our sins. We thank you for this time of worship and song, time of worship and communion as we remembered our Lord's death in place of us on the cross. We pray that as we look to your word now, even as we look to this Old Testament uh, scripture, that we would see Christ even in this text. That we would see that all of your scriptures, from beginning to end, drive us and point us to the very one whom would come in human flesh live and die for our sins. We thank you, Lord, for Christ, and we thank you for this time. We pray that you be glorified through the teaching of your word. May you cause it to go forth and accomplish exactly that which you purpose to do. Lord, may you cause our people to hear it not as the words of man, but as your words for this, for your people at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, this is an offer that is too good for you to refuse. And when usually when you hear that, that's usually when you refuse it, right? No? You guys know? Then I got, I got something to sell you later on. Uh, but anyways, if there is any one offer that is too good to refuse, it is the offer of salvation. The salvation, forgiveness of sins that God makes to everyone in this world, to whosoever believes in him. We've seen this offer of salvation centered upon uh, one man, one promise, the Messiah, the Messianic servant. servant. And last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 54 through 56 that in response to that servant, Isaiah 53, that uh, promise where uh, really when you read Isaiah 53, there's no one else that fulfills that prophecy written 700 B.C. than Jesus Christ himself of Nazareth that we realize that in response to this servant, we are called to respond. Israel is called to respond. The nations are called to respond. And we're called to respond with saving faith. We're called to respond to receive this salvation. Because this is a great offer, literally an offer that you cannot refuse. Isaiah 53 verse, verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, the payment, the punishment for our sins, not to fall on us, but to fall on him, upon the Savior, on the cross. The servant was prophesied as one who would come to die in place of us for our sins, for our iniquities, for our injustices. And all who trust in him would be justified, that is, would be declared righteous before God to declare right before God, even though none of us are righteous before God. 
None of, not a single one of us. But yet God, because of what his son did for us, with those who receive him are declared right before him that we might have forgiveness of sins, that we might have eternal life. And this is an offer that is too good to refuse. And yet we know many of us have been there. Maybe some of you in this room are there right now. There are still some, many in this world, who reject the gospel, reject Christ, reject God's salvation. Today's passage is a continuation of this call that God is making to anyone who would hear to respond to the Messiah, the Messianic servant. There's been a call to salvation from chapter 54, 55, and much of 56. A salvation that is available to everyone, not just to Israelites, even though the Old Testament is often seen as a book written to the Israel, and it is. But it's an offer of salvation to whether you're a foreigner, whether you're a eunuch, someone who would be would be um, not welcome into the, into the assembly of the righteous. No matter who you are, the salvation is offered to you. And in our text today, though, it ends with a, a word of warning, a word of warning to the wicked. Now, the wicked, we might, many of us here probably think, well, I'm not wicked. You know, I'm not a, really, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. You know, I'm not a child molester. So I'm not wicked. But in the Bible, the wicked are those, basically, are, are this large category of all those who refuse to obey the Lord, all those who do not follow after him and worship him. To those who basically love their sin, love going their own ways more than they love God, more than they love going God's ways. It is a warning to, I believe, some of us sitting here in this room. And uh, it's a, a warning passage when, you, you know, as a, uh, as a parent, you know, I've been learning about warning my children. A warning, oh, watch out, that's dangerous. And I'll tell you the truth, it kind of gets, you know, uh, I can get old warning my kids and have all the time, a like hundred times. Don't climb on that chair. You're going to fall. You know, it just happens. But, you know, sometimes you go, but there is, a, there is a warning in this passage. And it's a warning that for those of us that are in church, we've probably heard hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. But we need to hear it again. It's a warning for us to be, to be guarded against ever, to be tempted to turn away from the Lord. And it's a warning to anyone who is not yet a believer here of what awaits. For the warning is that there is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace. This phrase, there is no peace for the wicked, is a phrase that we saw at the end of chapter 48. And we see it again here at the end of chapter 57. In fact, we're going to see at the, in the end of chapter 66, we're going to see a very similar warning given that there is no peace for the wicked. And this is our theme for today's message, and uh, pray that it would be encouragement to us in some way, but that it would also motivate us to appreciate the peace that we have in the Messiah. As we study this passage, we're going to find really, uh, it breaks down to three parts, three situations that magnify this warning that there is no peace for the wicked. The three things that happen in the life of Israel at this time in Isaiah's day that magnify this warning that there's no peace for the wicked. Okay, let's take a look then at these three situations. The first situation we find in chapter 56, verse 9 through 57, 2, and that's the failure of Israel's leaders. 
This situation really magnified this, this reality. Let's read uh, verse 9 through the first two verses of chapter 57. God is speaking here. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. Each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only more so. The righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. In these verses, we are learning that the failure of Israel's leaders, Israel's leaders, their priests, their their governors, their their kings, the failure of Israel's leaders to watch over and warn the people of impending danger is a key factor to Israel being at the mercy of their surrounding nations. Israel was constantly under the attack, under the threats of the surrounding nations around them, whether it's Syria, Babylon, uh, even, even the northern kingdom at times. And so there's a call here referring to the, the nations of the world. The word beast in verse 9 is a, is a reference not to literal animals, but it's a, it's a figurative word that these animals, are, these nations are called to come and feast, eat upon the people of God. In fact, Ezekiel 34, verse 5 and 8, will use this term beast in that way, referring to the nations. God is calling the nations around Israel, the people of God, to come and feast on his people. Why? How can this be possible? How, why are the animals coming to feast on his people? Because the people who are supposed to be guarding them, the watchmen, they're all blind. They're blind. The watchmen, as you know, in everyday life in Israel were, had a task. Usually it would be a night watchman. They would be on the guard. They would on the lookout for threats, dangers. Sometimes it would be a shepherd who would be a watchman. But they would watch out for danger for animals and for enemies attacking or for thieves and robbers. And then they would warn the people. That was their job. And that was a very common task in that day. But the role of a spiritual watchman among the leaders of God, is, is referred to us in a place like in, in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 3.17, we read this verse where God calls Ezekiel. This, he says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Spiritually speaking, then, the watchmen, the Israel's leaders, were to pass on the words of warning from the Lord to Israel. Whenever they heard a word of warning from God, they needed to pass that on. They needed, therefore, they needed to know God's word. They needed to know God's truths. But Israel's leaders failed to do that. Instead, they neither saw nor they understood the truth of God's impending judgment. They just they were they were like watchdogs that had no bark. Imagine that you have a guard dog but it doesn't bark. You know, and they might bite the person at least, but they can't warn you that there's danger. Those good dogs, you know, you want someone to bark. Even if they don't bite, at least they bark. It usually scares the people, right? That's what happens, right? If I hear a dog, I'm, like, oh, I'm, I'm not going around that house. Well, not to say I was burglarizing anything, okay? But you know, dogs without bark. They were, they were blind. They didn't know the truth. They didn't have it. And what's more, they used their position. Instead of being uh, to serve the people, they used it to serve themselves. 
They pursued their own personal pleasures in wine, and they were, they were, drink, they were drinking themselves, and they were talking to one another. Uh, they were speaking uh, basically tomorrow as if there was no problem when tomorrow could have, would be bringing and the future would be bringing impending judgment. They would simply say they believe that, oh, tomorrow's just going to be like today except more so. Like, oh, it's all going to be good. There's no problem. As a result of the negligence of Israel's leaders, wickedness flourished in Israel. There was no one to tell them that their idolatry was wrong, that they were in sin. No one to tell them that, you know, hey, maybe we should not be doing the, going this way. Maybe we should not be worshiping these other gods. And as a result, where wickedness flourished, where, and especially where wickedness flourishes under leaders who are absent and negligent, righteous people perish. See that in 57 verse 1 and 2. In fact, no one cares that the righteous are perishing. And you find that to be true almost even in countries today where rulers that are wicked and evil, given their free reign, you end up finding that mostly the righteous will be, are killed. They're taken away. And though no one cares about it, they're all just trying to survive. Everyone's trying to survive. Yet for the righteous who did die, the reality that was in, that it, was that in contrast to living in a fallen world under unrighteous, negligent leaders, they were actually entering into peace. You know, I don't know about you guys, think about it. When people, righteous people die, yes, it's sad, but according to God, his word, they're actually entering into peace. That's why we often say, rest in peace. For those who are righteous, who stand before who know the Lord, who know the Messiah, when they die, they will enter into a peace that is beyond anything we've known in this world. You may think you know peace here on earth, but our peace compares in comparison to the peace that we'll have when we enter into the presence of the Lord. The only way to a permanent lasting peace is through faith in God's Son. You know, when spiritual leaders fail to warn God's people, and that's, this is really a message to people like myself who are in position of leadership, pastors, uh, many of you who are ministry leaders. We, we fail our people when we don't warn them. It's hard to be a people pleaser and be a church leader. And trust me, I like to be liked like, just like everybody else. But when God warns his people, we as leaders have a responsibility to warn others. In a few weeks, we'll be having our ministry leaders retreat. Many of you are ministry leaders. You, you have responsibility over respective ministries in this church. And I, I don't know how you, what you think about your role. You, you're responsible for a ministry. You lead a ministry. But you know, as leaders of a ministry, you're not just administratively leading, initiating, making decisions, making uh, calls and, and hire, you know, bringing on new staff or letting us out. But your responsibility as a leader in this church, as a ministry leader, is that you're one of the leading disciple makers. That as a ministry leader, we're, we're disciple makers. We'll talk about disciple making next week, by the way. And as part of our responsibility as disciple makers to teach others of what Jesus taught is to warn others, to warn others of danger, to warn others of the danger of refusing, rejecting God, but even warning one another when we choose to walk in sin. When we see a brother or sister uh, maybe falling away from the Lord, we, we should love them. It's our responsibility to love them, come alongside, and to warn them of the dangers, but also just to see how they're doing and, and draw them back to the Lord. 
The gospel is not just the good news of Christ's substitutionary death, isn't it? It's also, it must include the bad news of man's sinfulness that deserves and awaits God's wrath. The reality is there is no peace for the wicked when leaders fail to warn as they should. When leaders fail, the people will perish. They'll be experienced no peace. However, having said that, it's not just the sin of the leaders. We can't just blame all our lack of peace upon our leaders. It's easy to do that. We can. We can say, you know, we think about uh, our, our government today and say, oh, because of their sins, therefore, that's why our world is in such a chaos. And there is a, some truth to that. When leaders fail, whether the church or when nations or companies even, there is no peace. But it's not just the sins of the leaders. It's also the sins of the people. It's the sins of the people. That's what we see in our second situation, that the sin of Israel's people also are a major factor in why there is no peace for them. Verse 3 to, uh, three to 5, we'll read 3 to 5. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit? who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags. These are pretty pointed words, aren't they? Uh, God does not hide our sin. You kinda, this is one of those indications that this is definitely not just a book written by man. You know, God just kind of calls our sin as it is. He points out Israel's sins here, and he's really clear. He just says Israel has no peace because of their sins, and they've been ch- they're being chastened for their idolatrous involvement in false religions, their, the surrounding false religions, often pagan practices of sorcery and religious prostitution. And by practicing such things, they were mocking God. They were transgressing his commandments. Uh, they were <clears throat> treating God deceitfully instead of faithfully. Two particular practices are are charged against them in verse 5. First of all, it's the fertility cult practice, this this idea of being inflamed under the oak trees. uh, It's it's just a fertility cult practice uh, involving uh, uh, immoral activity in the presence of luscious trees as part of their worship. Second was the cult of Molech. Uh, The cult of Molech here is referred to by the slaughter of the children in the ravines. Uh, usually, we sometimes read it in different Old Testament texts about causing some king would worship Mole by causing his sons and daughters to walk through the fire. Basically, they're offering their children, they're, they're sacrificing their children to the God of Molech. They're killing their kids. It oftentimes, it would happen in ravines. Uh, the Valley of Hinnom was a very popular place for that. You know, and we read this and think, wow, that's crazy. I'm glad that happened back then, not today. Before we turn our ears off to the possibility of these sins in our own life, uh, yes, we don't, we may not be involved in fertility cult practices, cult or the cult of Molech, it's probably not real popular today, but these sins that we see that the Israel committing are, still exist in our world today, don't they? Lust and murder are still common. Many of us have been following with uh, the salacious news out of Hollywood, and it's been bleak, but yet uh, probably on kind of unsurprising for many of us. But this week I, I read with a little kind of, well, it's not a surprise, but still a little shock. 
a new book detailing the, the sordid uh, sexual parties of the Silicon Valley high-tech elite. You guys read about that maybe? But you know, you don't have to be in a power of position to lust, do you? You don't. Pornography runs rampant in our world, and in our internet. Lust is a common sin. In fact, probably more common, more readily available to be fulfilled in our days than it was even in Israel's days. As for murder of children, we, we still hear it happening, don't we? We read sad, sad stories of, of parents who, uh, for whatever reason, murder their children. That makes no sense. But those are rarer even in our day compared to the, the number of, and I'm, I'm going to get on a, a subject that in our area is not politically correct, but I believe it, it is a warning for us. The number of abortions each year in our country is astounding. If we believe that life is a gift from God and life begins in the womb, that God fearfully and wonderfully made us in our mother's womb, then we should be heartbroken when we read 2014 CDC report. The numbers enumerates, basically, they've been following for many, about 10, 15, 20 years. And I was astounded when I looked at the number. I didn't, I didn't think it was so high, honestly. But it, over 650,000 abortions, those are numbers tallied, in the United States alone in that one year. 650,000 lives cut short. We are caught up in a culture of lust and a culture of murder of innocent children. We've taken it even further. We don't even no longer need to attribute it to idol worship. It's simply self-worship. It is our convenience, our comfort, our pleasures, our choice. And God help us. Because we too are easily influenced by our world, by the cult, prevailing culture of our world. It's hard to resist when everybody else around you, at work or at school, holds to the prevailing opinions. Well, God elaborates further on the pervasiveness of idolatry throughout Israel in verse 6 through 10. Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice behind the door and the doorposts. You have set up your sign, indeed, for far removed from me, and you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. You have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. You were tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say, it is hopeless. You found renewed strength, therefore you did not faint." Israel's idolatry is basically was everywhere. It was practiced in the ravines. It was practiced in the mountains. It was practiced behind closed doors, in the temple, in their homes. 
They thought they were hiding even from their, their practice from God, though God saw it all. There's no place that Israel's idolatry had failed to reach nor take them to. In verse 9, uh, the word for king there could be a reference to Moloch, to the, uh, the God who uh, like sacrificed children. But more likely, I, think I agree with the NAS translators, that this is a reference to, to foreign kings. That's the same root word. That the idolatry of Israel would take them to foreign kings, to foreign nations, where they would then imitate those foreign kings, imitate their religions and their, their practices. An example of this is King Ahaz in 2 Kings 16.10 and following. But when he went to Damascus, Damascus of Assyria, of Assyria the capital, he saw the, an altar there, and he really liked it. it was the, and he says, I'm going to copy that altar. And he brought it back, and he, 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 made, he sent the blueprints back to the hot chief priest. Chief priest made a copy of it, and they put it in the temple. And what did they do with the bronze altar that normally was used for sacrifices? They put it aside. And so the idolatry of Israel brought them far and wide. And God pronounces, uh, and, <clears throat> and, and what's more, even though it took them so far and they, and they should have felt they were tired by it, the, the length of the road, yet they never re- responded and said, this is hopeless. Instead, they continued in their idolatry. And so God pronounced a judgment upon them in verse 11 and 13 of chapter 57. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me? No, give me a thought. Was I not silent even for a long time so you do not fear me? I would declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, possess my holy mountain. God knows the heart of man. God knows our hearts. God knows the hearts of the Israelites, and he knows that they, what's reality is that they feared, they feared or reverence their idols more than they feared or reverence God himself. And so God says, well, you know, you fear them. I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to show the state of your righteousness and your deeds. I'm going to reveal it to you. I'm going to allow you to go through a testing that's going to show where you stand. And he says, the, and he says those right, he's going to show them or declare their righteousness and deeds, but they will not profit you. And the fact that he indicates that in, tells us that in reality they had no righteousness. They had no deeds that could save them. See, the righteous and deeds were, they were thinking before their idols was something that could help them, that could save them in times of trouble. But when the time comes when they would cry out, when they would need help that God would bring, they will find that though they would, might want to turn to the idols, that their idols will fail them. They will not help them. The wind will carry away their idols. It's, it's a picture as if a breath will take them away. It's this picture that God makes. And it's kind of cool because God, whenever he talks about his glory, it's a word that actually means heaviness. Within the, in the Hebrew word, God's glory is heavy. It's not something that is easily blown away. It's settled. It's sure. It will always be there. He's, he has a presence that is not removed by winds and by breaths. He'll always be there. And that's why when you cry out and you find your eye, and I love it because though their idols fail them and they realize that they won't, they're all blown away, God's still in the midst of their crying out, offers them hope. Verse 13, and verse, he says, he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, will take possession of my holy mountain. Those who find refuge in the rock 
will find salvation. Particularly for Israel, they're going to inherit the land. And this is very significant because Israel, remember, is going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. The northern kingdom has already been taken into captivity in Assyria. And so they're, going, they're promised that you take refuge in me, you will inherit the land. You will return to the land. You will possess this land that I promise you. And that's significant, not to you and me today, because we're not Israelites. There's no promise of land. We're not going to go live in Israel, okay? That's not our promise. We're going to live in San Francisco. Oh, right here. But we are, there's a promise of an inheritance for Israel that is theirs because God promised it to Abraham. And you think, why does that seem significant? Isn't this just figurative for salvation? No, it's not. This is literally a promise to them of, that God will keep his promise to the given land because he promised to Abraham. And if God promised a land to Abraham and his descendants, then God must, will, and God, because he is a true God, will keep his promise of the land. And that's as important because if he doesn't keep that little promise of a land, how do we know he's going to keep the promise to give us salvation, to give us forgiveness of sins. If you can't keep the lesser thing, why, how can you be confident that he's going to keep the greater thing? For the people of Israel, it was their sins, their idolatry, the idolatrous practice that robbed them of peace and security so that when trials came, they were like the wind carried about. Their, the idols failed them. And we as Christians, though, we today, as Bible-believing Christians, know that the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ is something that's secure. We often say, once saved, always saved. The greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We believe that there's, this salvation is secure because it's been finished upon the cross. But yet, whenever we give in to sin... We should find in our lives that there will be no peace. We belong, Lord. If you live, choose to live in sin, there will be no peace. God, our Father, because God, our Father, will discipline us. He'll bring us to repentance. Hebrews twelve four. He's like a father who loves us. What father is there that doesn't discipline their children? You know, I see my children just climbing on chairs yesterday, climbing on the table. It looks kind of fun. What do you think I said to them? Hey, man, that looks awesome. Do it. Just jump. I said, get off that table. Get off that chair. And they're not even two yet. I'm telling them, you get off there. Because I, I want to discipline them. I don't want them coming to your house and climbing on your chairs and your tables. I don't want them coming to this church and climbing, jumping on these tables and jumping on their chairs. That's not even like going to be rude, but, well, it's going to hurt them, isn't it? Well, Unless they're going to be base jumpers, whatever. But it, what if God never... But the reality is God disciplines us like a loving father. Now, if you're a Christian and you all of a sudden are... You, you chosen to live in sin. It happens. I hope you'll find God disciplining you. But what if God never disciplines you? What if you're, you're living in sin right now? You're sitting in the RP. You're, you're a professing Christian. You believe in Jesus Christ. But you're finding out that in your, there's no discipline. God's not disciplining me. And what if you continue in sin? You find actually, well, actually, life is good. I find that I can sin and be a Christian. And I would tell you, and I would, as a, as, as a warning, really, 
that is when you particularly need to take a serious examination of your faith because God does not lie. And if he's your father, he will lovingly discipline you. And if he doesn't discipline you, then maybe you should seriously consider whether he is truly your father. Maybe you have not genuinely put your faith in him. It's the sins of the people of Israel that led to no peace. And it's for the same reason. It's for us. The sins lead to no peace. Our third and final situation that reminds us, that magnifies this, the reality that there is no peace for the wicked is actually a positive thing. It's something that's positive, but it, it really magnifies the absence of peace for the wicked. And that is the promise of God's peace. That this promise of God's peace is, is so great that we see and understand that how terrible it is for those who do not trust in his Savior, in his servant. Verse 14 to 21 elaborate then on this promise that was made at the end of verse 13, that those who take refuge in him will, will find... Uh, will uh, inherit the land. Verse 14, 20, I'll read the whole, uh, verse, verse 19, 14 and 19 of chapter 57. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. That's Israel, right? My people's Israel. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry and he went on turning away in the, in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Verse 14 begins with a prophecy of a building project. It's a building project that God is basically foretelling of a roadway, and this is uh, this may be a literal roadway or uh, in the millennial kingdom, uh, most likely, or it could just be figurative as well, that it'll be easy that whatever obstacles hinder God's people from reaching him, particularly uh, to, that is knowing him as their God and their Savior and the Lord, will be removed. God will remove the obstacles to peace for the nation of Israel. And verse 15 is a beautiful verse. It tells us that, that God dwells in two places. He tells them that they'll be able to find him because though he, on the one hand, he dwells on high. He dwells uh, in the heavens, in the glories of heaven. But on the other hand, he dwells down below. He dwells in the humble places of man. He dwells among the contrite and lowly of spirit. Those who are humbled, those who are desperate, those who are poor, impoverished. God dwells among the needy, those who recognize their neediness. These words would be repeated again in Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, in a little different way. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God's peace is with those who are humble and contrite in spirit. God's peace is with those who tremble at his word, who fear God and, want, and fear his, in his more than we fear the idols of our lives. For God promised that he will revive the humble. God, God does not welcome those who think they are strong, those things who think they are great, those things who think they are mighty, who think they are wonderful people. God welcomes those who recognize that they are needy, poor, weak people because we are weak because of our sin. You know, in our world today, when people get caught up in sin, a lot of times the natural reaction among all of us is to dig our heels in, to cover ourselves. We try to justify ourselves as, as being innocent, we want to point our fingers at someone else. It's, it's that person's fault. It's that person's fault. It's this disease I have. And then even if we want to come back to God, we want to come back to God on our own terms. But God wants to humble ourselves. He wants us to humble ourselves. He wants us to recognize that we're sinners, that we are deserving of all just punishment from a holy God. And, but he wants us to cast ourselves upon his mercy. You know, when we are caught up in sin, there is no better place than to cast ourselves at the mercy of God. You know, look at this passage. This is a description of, of Israel, right? And God says, though he was angry with them and he would send them into captivity for their sins, he would not remain angry for them because they would not be able to contend forever. If he kept being angry, they would all perish. Is basically what he's saying. And so though, they're in, though basically they continue in their, going their own way, they continue in their sin, God says that he's going to save them. He promised to heal his nation. He would cause the nation themselves to turn back to him and to praise him. That's the mercy of God. It's the power of God. He would make sure that Israel, his chosen nation, would turn back to him one day. That's the mercy of God, even though they continue to choose, they continue to choose go their own ways. That would be uh, fulfilled to some extent, to a lesser extent, in the return from captivity. But in the ultimate future sense, it will still be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled one day when, when he returns and establishes his kingdom and Israel will come as a nation back to the Messiah in saving faith. But the, what's really cool in verse 19 is that the specific praise that will come out of the lips of the people of, of God at that day is that this is what will come out of their lips. They will shout, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near. They're basically saying that there's peace abundantly available to anyone who, come, who would come to the Lord. Whether you're far away or whether you're near, you can come to the Lord and find peace. Now, or all around the world, you can come to him and find peace. You can find a remedy for our sins. Paul would quote this verse. The apostle Paul would quote this verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17. For there we find that both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God in one body through the cross. 
It says, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. And then a few verses down, then he quotes this verse. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. See, God gives peace not only to Israel, though the promise here is for Israel in, in this text, in this, in this general passage, but those, these verses, like verse 19, are a reminder that God's peace through his son or through his servant is meant for the whole nation, for the world, meant for the nations. He's a light to the nations. The promise of peace in his son is for everyone. It's in his servant who suffered and died, not in, only in Israel's place, but in our place, for our sins. For every single sin that you and I have ever committed, past, present, and future, Christ came to die in our place for. That if you believe in him, you can have forgiveness of sins. You can have a, re- restore, a reconciled relationship with our creator God. If you're here this morning and you don't have this relationship with God yet, God desires for you to come to know him, to be saved and to know his peace through his son. He loved you and he gave his son for you to take on the form of a man in humility, to grow up, to live a perfect righteous life and then to die in your place, in all our places, on the cross. And if God is drawing you and and you are sensing that there is no peace, then you will find that peace in his son. Would you turn to him today? But I would do not do my task, I'd fail to do my task if I did not also add the warning to reject this message is to reject Christ, is to reject God, is to continue in a life of what God calls wickedness. God will call you wicked even though you are the most philanthropic, most you know, outwardly loving, most good deed-doing person in all the world. Verse 20 and 21 are the sobering description of those who live in this way. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Those of us who do not trust in the Lord, do not trust in our creator, who, do not, who reject his servant, this Jesus, are going to be like those who are tossed on the sea, and you've ever been in a boat and tossed sea, or you've just, yeah, some of you may go on a cruise or something like that. Sometimes you're out there, you, you know, when, you're, when the seas are moving, you just can't just, hey, stop the seas. Only Jesus does that. You are at the mercy of the waves. There's nothing that can help you. Nothing can stop it. You're just cast to and fro. It's, it cannot be quiet. If you've been, you know, got to, uh, got, went down to Pacifica a few weeks ago and just listened to the waves off the Pacific Pier, they are deafening. You can imagine how much more it's out in the, in the oceans, in the middle of the seas. Waters are tossing up, refuse and mud. You're basically at hopeless there. That's the life of those who reject the Savior. 
There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. In this peace, and you hopefully you will realize that there is no peace for the wicked in this life. But there are a few of us who, who think that, well, you know, I've, even though we reject, we have not received the Savior, and I think life's all right. I'm okay. But this peace, this lack of peace is not just for this life. There's a lack of peace that is, going, is coming upon all of us who reject the Savior. The wrath of God is being stored up. God is being merciful. Now, he's being patient, long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish, the Scripture says. He's waiting for the fullness of time that all his people would respond to him and turn to him in saving faith. Turn to him while it's not too late. Well, I know in our world today, we, we don't generally identify ourselves as wicked. But you, can never, you cannot know the peace of God until you recognize that you are. Until you recognize that you are a sinner and that Christ came to die and save sinners like you and me. Have you received the Savior? Do you know peace, peace? Or do you have no peace? God is clear in his word. Salvation is found in his son who died in our place. For those of us who know this peace, may the words peace, peace be coming out of our lips. May we be telling others and sharing this with good news with others. May particularly here when, when we gather, but when we also go out into our world, our, our families, our homes, our workplaces, may we tell others of the good news of Christ, of how he came and died for us, so that all who believe in him will know this peace, peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the peace you give to us, a peace that we lost when our ancestors, our forefathers, for Adam uh, sinned against you in the garden. But Lord, we, as, as a, a, a lack of peace that was further accentuated when we continued and chose to live in sin in our own lives, when we choose to go our own ways and not your ways. But Lord, your thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. Help us to constantly remember that you are our God and we are your creatures, your creation. Help us to learn to trust your word, this holy book that you've given to us. Help us to know that despite how tempting sin may be in our lives, as it often is, that that is a road to no peace. That only through your son do we have true peace. Peace on earth, but ultimately peace with you, a peace that is eternal because your son, your servant came to take on our sins, our iniquities, to justify the many, that all who believe upon him and trust in him, all who take refuge in you and your, your provision can find forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and peace. Lord, we praise you and thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray.
Amen.